This song was taught to me by my cousin, Joe Sulphur. It's a welcoming song, saying something like, we were brought here by the old ones and they're always watching out for us. Alena, 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 if we need to go live, Alena, 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 Hobani, Hobani, Alena, 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 Aja Lugi Magongi, Alena, Alena, Hey Yongi Goli. We're here to celebrate life, it's so short. We're put here to love and take care of each other. So, ho bunny, ho bunny, let's dance. Hello and welcome to episode 109 of Commonplace. I'm your host, Rachel Zucker. You've been listening to Ale Nale No by Joy Harjo, from her newest album, I Pray For My Enemies. Joy Harjo is an internationally renowned performer and writer of the Muscogee Creek Nation. She served three times as Poet Laureate of the United States from 2019 to 2022, and is the author of 10 books of poetry, including, most recently, Weaving Sunset in a Scarlet Light, 50 Poems for 50 Years. She is also the author of several plays, prose collections, and children's books, and two memoirs, Crazy Brave and Poet Warrior. Her many honors include the National Book Critics Circle Ivan Sandroff Lifetime Achievement Award, the Ruth Lilly Prize for Lifetime Achievement from the Poetry Foundation, the Academy of American Poets Wallace Stevens Award, and a Guggenheim Fellowship. As a musician and performer, Harjo has produced seven award-winning music albums. She served as executive editor of the anthology When the Light of the World Was Subdued, Our Songs Came Through, a Norton anthology of Native Nations poetry, and the editor of Living Nations Living Words, an anthology of First Peoples poetry, the companion anthology to her signature Poet Laureate project. She is a Chancellor of the Academy of American Poets, Board of Directors Chair of the Native Arts and Cultures Foundation, and is the first artist-in-residence for Tulsa's Bob Dylan Center. She lives in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Joy Harjo is also one of my very first favorite poets. I've been reading her books and following her work with deep admiration since I was in high school. First, the business. For this episode, some members of the Commonplace Book Club will get a copy of In Mad Love and War, courtesy of Wesleyan University Press, Crazy Brave, Poet Warrior, Weaving Sundown in a Scarlet Light, all courtesy of W.W. Norton and all by Joy Harjo. 
a few additional members of the Commonplace Book Club will receive audible download codes for Joy's Audible Catching the Light, part of Yale University Press's Why I Write lecture series. Commonplace's charitable partner will donate $250 to Indigenous Nations Poets, Founded in 2020, In Na Po, Indigenous Nations Poets, is a national indigenous poetry community committed to mentoring emerging writers, nurturing the growth of indigenous poetic practices, and raising the visibility of native writers past, present, and future. In Na Po recognizes the role of poetry in sustaining tribal sovereign nations and native languages. It was an overwhelming honor getting to record this conversation with Joy over Zoom on February 10th, 2023, from my home in Scarborough, Maine. I had taken my time preparing. After all these years, I wanted to savor Joy Harjo's work, and I definitely didn't want to blow it. I reread Joy's early work, read her newest collections, and listened to both her memoirs and her jazz albums. For weeks, Joy's voice and music and poems and stories filled my ears and my dreams as I traveled from Maine to New York City and then for a week to Costa Rica, where my oldest son and I attended a mindfulness retreat. In Costa Rica, I had the incredible experience of learning from Jack Cornfield, Trudy Goodman, Lama Sultram Alioni, Alyssa Eppel, Carolyn Welch, Dan Siegel, and Shelley Harrell. I spent a week learning, meditating, swimming in the ocean at sunset, eating simple but delicious food not prepared by me, and for the first time in years, was able to be physically close to strangers without being conscientiously and obsessively mindful of COVID. No television, no phone, no writing, just listening to the howler monkeys at dusk, and then for about an hour each night before falling asleep, listening to Joy Harjo. I came back from that week feeling healthier and calmer than I've ever felt. I came back with the new dream project of the Commonplace School for Embodied Poetics with a deepening meditation practice, and I came back with a long list of questions for Joy. My blissed-out glow lasted a few weeks, and then, about a week before I was set to record with Joy, some terrifying, totally unexpected cancer news from my friend Ariel. This news, so awful in itself, also brought back memories of my own gynecological traumas, of several other friends currently struggling with cancer. I went down the rabbit hole of medical trauma. I went down the rabbit hole of loss and of being a single woman without siblings, without a partner, without an emergency contact. The what if I get cancer or become disabled rabbit hole. I went down the poor me. There's only one review of my book that took me 10 years to write and it was a lousy and off point review rabbit hole. I was okay while I was actually meditating or listening to Pema Chodron or reading Joy Harjo's poems, but when I wasn't doing those things, I was trapped in a scarcity economy mindset. There wasn't enough time, enough love, enough health, enough friends, enough of anything. I was spiraling all over the place. 
I started to feel the disoriented thinking of depression and anxiety gripping my thoughts. I was not smiling at fear or living beautifully with uncertainty as Pema Chodron would have me do. So an hour before my Zoom date with Joy, I get an email from Joy Harjo's assistant saying that Miss Harjo's schedule will only allow for 45 minutes. I looked at my pile of scrawled notes and underlined books and felt a sob rise up in my throat. I just sat there, feeling this well of sadness and anger, disappointment, regret, shame, and jealousy that neither surfaced nor faded, just held my heart hostage, stuck. Earlier in the day, I had texted my friend Ariel, thinking of you, going to interview Joy Harjo today at 2 p.m., have been reading her poems, and they are so good. And that, of course, makes me think of you and look forward to the time when we can sit around and talk about poems. I love you. As I sat there in the grip of this terrible feeling, Ariel responded, I love her and imagine she'll be a great person to spend time with. Enjoy it and grab all the wise woman knowledge you can and bring it back to me. One evening, Moses and I went down to the ocean to swim in Costa Rica and Jack Cornfield was there slowly walking alone into the ocean with a bright yellow flotation device clipped around his waist. Jack is in his late 70s and the water was rough. I was glad to see him taking precautions. I didn't want anything to happen to him and I certainly didn't want to be in the position of trying to save Jack's life should he struggle. In the water, I started to make the usual nervous small talk. Isn't this amazing? Jack nodded. My son was quiet next to me. Have you taught here before? I asked. Oh, yes, he said. And how does this time compare to the previous times you've taught here? I asked, falling into interviewer mode. Well, said Jack, treading water. You see, I read this book, Be Here Now. And he smiled at us, and we moved in the water as the sun went down. Even if I were a literary critic with hours to record, I couldn't present Joy Hardrow's oeuvre and career in its totality. I couldn't present an homage worthy of her 50 years of writing, and I'm not a literary critic. What is my job when recording a conversation with someone like Joy Harjo? What is this role, this podcasting thing in my life? What is it in yours? After 109 episodes, I'm still not sure. Be here now, as Ramdas would say. Bring the wisdom back to Ariel. Later this month, on April 21st, I'll be reading at Grace Cathedral in San Francisco. And then I'm attending a week-long silent retreat at Spirit Rock. I've never done a silent retreat. I'm looking forward to figuring some things out or not, to being quiet and seeing what happens. Meanwhile, Commonplace will keep on being here to keep you company. 
We've got three fabulous guest-hosted episodes coming up. Gabrielle Rucker, hosted by Valentin Conady, Moheb Solomon, hosted by Valentin Conady, and Sharif Shanahan and Safia and Hillo, hosted by Isaac Ginsberg Miller. We will also be running a five-part special series, director's cut editions of my BWLS lectures on which my book, The Poetics of Wrongness, is based. I wish all of us a journey into greater health and connection and liberation. May a long season of poetry, language making, and courage begin for us all. We were running out of breath as we ran to meet ourselves. We were surfacing the edge. Even though we only have a little bit of time, it's not true that we only have a little bit of time because your work has been with me since I remember getting um, in Mad Love and War in 1990 as a graduation present. Um, And ever since then, it, it has been my companion. I listened to Crazy Brave and um, Poet Warrior. There were so many things that I wrote down, and one of them was, you just have this phrase, the doorway between panic and joy. And I didn't know when we spoke today that I would feel right in that doorway. But in the past week, I got this really... um, devastating news that that my poetry sister um, has a very serious uh, form of cancer. And um, so I find myself in this place, um, thinking about your work, thinking about your poems, thinking about the difference between poetry and prayer. And I was hoping that you might do me the honor of reading a poem to get rid of fear or fear poem I give you back as it's sometimes called. And if you're willing to talk about, you have gone through so many, for lack of a better word, hardships, losses and um, griefs. And how, (laughs) I guess I'm asking you as, as a, you know, as a woman in, in, in just turned 51, it just feels like the griefs keep coming. How do you keep going? You, they do. I mean, it doesn't, we're in the thick of it. I always remember asking Audrey Lord. I really looked up to her and it was the first time I got to meet with her in person and we were, sitting at a, we were at a, a big book fair and sitting in the cafeteria of some, a university, I believe. And, and then I, I figured she had, by your age, she was probably close to your mm-hmm. age, that she had figured it all out. <laughs> and I always remember her throwing her head back and saying in her very Audrey Lord voice, no, honey. <laughs> no, it, ju- it just goes on. And that's why I think I go to write it. We all need to have something to go to, to, you know, process grief, to let it go for a while, to tangle with it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I like doing weights and gym, but, you know, dance, all that stuff too. And, but 
for me, poetry, the reason it may be, it's an obsession, maybe it's a useful obsession, you know, maybe any art is a useful obsession to figure, you know, to make it through and to help others because we're all here to help others make it through. And that's what poetry, you know, I've always loved poetry, but writing it was something that came, I think, rather late. And, and it came about because it, for me, poetry became another kind of language, mm -hmm. uh, you know, other than the everyday language, like, you know, I need this, where are you going, da-da-da-da-da. It became a language that um, upped, the, upped the ante, up the, the level, so you could speak about what is unspeakable or, or sing about what can't be sung. Yeah. Um, would you mind reading that poem? I, I know it's sort of an often requested one. You know, it's not so much any, uh, it's interesting. I don't know what people are reading of mine anymore. Hmm. <laughs> you used to, it was always horses. And I hadn't read that poem in years. And I, I was at the National Cowboy Poetry Gathering. Of course, I had to read that one. And I had realized I hadn't read it in years. I perform it with a band when I perform with mm -hmm. a band. But um, I give you back, I haven't read much but it used to be um everywhere but i'll read it and it is a poem i wrote when i needed it and i wasn't mm -hmm. at the level of the poem when i wrote it it was like i think sometimes our art is given to us to teach us where we need to go or where we might wind up when we're um matured enough either in our art or in our human beingness to see what the gift was or see what it was. And this poem has been with me almost my whole writing life. And I, you know, I, it, it taught me. It taught me and it helped protect me. I give you back. I release you, my beautiful and terrible fear, I release you. You are my beloved and hated twin, but now I don't know you as myself. I release you with the pain I would know at the death of my children. You are not my blood anymore. I give you back to the soldiers who burned down my home, beheaded my children, raped and sodomized my brothers and sisters. I give you back to those who stole the food from our plates when we were starving. I release you fear because you hold these scenes in front of me and I was born with eyes that can never close. I release you, I release you, I release you, I release you. I am not afraid to be angry. I am not afraid to rejoice. I am not afraid to be black. I am not afraid to be white. I am not afraid to be hungry. I am not afraid to be full. I am not afraid to be loved. I am not afraid to be hated. I am not afraid to be loved, to be loved, to be loved, fear. Oh, you have choked me, but I gave you the leash. You have gutted me, but I gave you the knife. You have devoured me but I laid myself across the fire. I take myself back, fear. You're not my shadow any longer. I won't hold you in my hands. You can't live in my eyes, my ears, my voice, my belly, or in my heart, my heart, my heart. But come here, fear. I am alive, and you are so afraid of dying. Thank you. I, I, I'm really grateful for that. I feel like you talk in your 
in your work about uh, and in interviews about poetry and poems being rituals. And I've been using that poem um, in my meditation practice and uh, in these moments where I'm, I'm, I'm trying to face the fear, basically, of loving people and the world and the grief that comes with that. Um, so this poem and uh, several other, and 50 other, 49 others, um, are in your new, it, it's sort of a selected, but it's, it's, it's so glorious. It's called Weaving Sundown in a Scarlet Light, and it just came out. Um, and it's the selected that I've always wanted um, in the sense that at, at the end there are these notes which, is, which are very straightforward, intimate, um, warm, generous of where you were at the time or what you remember about writing each particular poem. And it's the stuff that I always want poets to tell me. And it's often the things that you only know if you go to a live reading and then you hear the po poet describing you know, the poem. And I just wanted to ask you about how how you decided to put out a selected or, a, you know, th this, this form and format um, of this book at this point in your life? Well, it was kind of a last minute thing. I was suddenly realized a little over a year ago, or maybe about a year ago, maybe not even a year ago, that it had been 50 years since my first poems were published. And I thought, mm -hmm. wow. So I've been working with Jill Bialowski at Norton since I think we just realized it was about 35 years ago. And so, and it's unusual to have, uh, you know, the same editor, you know, with a house because so, you know, so much, there's such a turnover, you know, with buyouts and this, that, and the other. So I've been lucky to have her and to work closely with her. And uh, so I, I sent in a book proposal and, and uh, which meant I had to, I had to uh, work really hard, fast to get this out. And but I was excited to be able to choose fifty poems for fifty years, and to kind of show the scope because often people, for a long time, the only book that people would bring or they all knew about she had some horses, mm -hmm. that book of poetry. And then there's a whole contingent with who are in Mad Love and War Freaks. And, and that's one of my favorite <laughs> books that came out from Wesleyan. Actually, I sent, uh, she had some horses. It was turned down by Norton. And graciously, I got a long letter from John Benedict. And so was In Mad Love and War. Same, you know, same thing again a third time with, in Mad, with uh, The Woman Who Fell from the Sky. I was with Norton. But mm -hmm. I got it. I just, I thought it was a good idea and it would show, you know, kind of give a sense of the scope because often people may know a poem. They might know perhaps the world ends here, but they don't know or they don't know that you've kept writing since you wrote She Had Some Horses and maybe even your bitter poems, <laughs> you know, are, you know, you can, you can see a kind of, um, you know, how, how an artist shifts. Yes. During that time. And so that that was part of it is to see all of that. And then I asked Sandra to do the intro. I love her introduction 
It's very personal. It feels I feel a little exposed by it, but at the same time, you know, it's you know, we're part of a generation and we're also part of a history together. And I think that that was what how she handled that really gave a sense of how we you know, how we both came up as young uh yeah, young na- young native writers, you know, back in the when we were going to graduate school in the nineteen seventies. Right. I I love um, Sandra Cisneros's um, introduction or forward in the book. It's it's and it reminds me of what you just said about Audre Lord. Um, like Sandra really looks at you in your mid twenties. She was a few years younger and she at the time thought you had it all figured out. You know, here (laughs) you were in graduate school, a mother, um, you know, going to do these gigs. And um, it's it's just it's fascinating to to think about you. I also went to the University of Iowa uh, for graduate school from 94 to 96 and I'm sorry to say it it was sort of all too similar to what you describe. They don't seem to have come a long way in certain ways um, in their kind of understanding. And it it reminds me of a moment, I, I can't remember if it's in Crazy Brave or Poet Warrior, when you describe a student, overhearing a student at UCLA say to someone else, that she wished you taught the way you wrote. Mm-hmm. And I, I kind of wanted to ask you a little bit about teaching and your own kind of development as a teacher. I mean, it's really clear from your work, and you say it very beautifully, that, that the education system in so many ways is meant to crush your spirit and your soul, not to uh, give you the tools of creativity, freedom, liberation, community. Now, and, and you've been, you've had a lot of misadventures, uh, maybe in the, in the academy, let's say. <laughs> but where are you now in your kind of feelings about your role as a teacher? Well, I, right now my role as a teacher, I, I travel a lot and, and speak at universities and in different, you know, communities, uh, different kind of community situations. And I'm here in my own Muscogee Creek Nation community. Mm -hmm. And I'm not associated with an academic institution. I am the artist in residence for the Bob Dylan Center. And I think I prefer that (laughs) over being in an academic institution. However, the last place I taught, University of Tennessee, Knoxville, was a wonderful way to go out mm. of it. But I'm still there. I taught two classes this week at Denison University, and I, I enjoy and I have so much to draw on. I think that can be hopeful, you know, to, to students of, you know, whatever discipline or you know, creative writing. I enjoyed those. I enjoyed those classes. But when I first started teaching, Actually, the first time I, well, the first teaching I ever did, I was tagged by my poetry professors as an undergraduate at the University of New Mexico to teach, go and um, assist teach uh, in poetry in the schools programs, Mm -hmm. New Mexico. And I was um, terrified. And (laughs) I was terrified. I'm 
I, I don't know. I'm kind of a cross between an extrovert and an introvert. It just depends. And, uh, but I learned, I mean, I learned, you know, I loved, um, I loved being with the students and watching them create even when they thought they couldn't. And, and I later did a lot of poetry in the schools and also in the prisons. Mm-hmm. But the one thing, one thing I always, I, I learned is that usually the best classes are the ones when the teachers come up to me and they should never do this, but they, some of them do. This is a terrible class. You know, this is, these are my troublemakers. And then usually those teachers leave. Mm-hmm. They don't stay, which, you know, they're supposed to stay to introduce you and to, to maintain some kind of order. But those were the classes that were the students, you know, were most creative overall. Mm-hmm. And then later I went to the University of Iowa. I got no, they gave me no support. They offered me. I, every place else I applied, I was offered teaching assistantships, scholarships, but Iowa, I decided, and I, I, rem, I was either brave or stupid because <laughs> I drove up there with two children. Most people didn't go to those programs with children. I had two children, and um, I had no idea how I was going to make a living, mm-hmm. except that I, so uh, there was a guy, Ray Leal, uh, I like remembering his name because he found... He went to, I guess, American Studies and got me a job, so I had money, teaching a class in American Studies, and I taught, you know, Native culture classes, but with literature. I basically taught Native literature, Mm -hmm. but there's so much, so much in, in, you know, you could teach. I went, I... I, I visited a, a Native law, federal Indian law class once at Harvard and taught a, a federal Indian law through poetry, mm-hmm. you know, which you can do that. And then but I, one of my favorite, before getting to the UCLA, one of my favorites was teaching it. I went back and taught at the Institute of American Indian Arts. You know, now it's there's an MFA program in creative writing. But when I went to school there in the late 60s, I was in high school and it was a Bureau of Indian Affairs school. And then when I went back and taught, it was moving out of that. It was in a shift. And I had, I don't even know how many classes I had. I taught creative writing. I taught fiction. I taught poetry. And I had the last um, high school class. And I met with them every day. But I felt, I think it was because I knew, I'd been there. I knew the students. I'm familiar with cultures. And... I felt so free. I, st- I am still in touch with those students. Mm. And um, some of the, they say I was the best teacher, but I, I didn't second guess. I worked on my classes, but I was in an environment that I, I, I knew the parameters. And it was, there's a whole different way of thinking and approach in our native cultures and there are in, you know, in Western, in, in, in Western, um, what is the word? Think about, I'll think, I'm still jet lagging a little bit. Mm -hmm. So, um, so by the time when I I left there, I later taught at University of New Mexico and went to Arizona because I was, um, no, University of New Mexico. Then I went. At, no, first my first academic position was at University mm-hmm. of Colorado Boulder, 
And I wrote about that where one of the professors came in and sat on my desk, didn't ask to come in, and basically said I was primitive. I got that several times in different ways. And uh, the kind of, you know, the... Um, so I had to deal with that, but and went to uni, uh, University of Arizona, taught at University, which was a decent, ex, it was a good experience, University of New Mexico. Mm-hmm. And then I wound up at UCLA. And that, I, there were a lot of political undertones, and, and someone reported to me when during the hiring discussion that uh, someone said, well, I, w- I had been a visiting writer there, and they said, well, she was in my office and didn't steal anything. Mm. And someone else said, well, who is she? Well, she's another one of, this was in the English department discussion. She's one of those uh, minorities who's clawing their way up to the system, and et cetera. So I was dealing with that kind of weighted atmosphere. Yeah. So that when I was teaching... I finally found my way. I felt constricted. I felt like I had my hands tied behind my back because I was supposed to teach in a Iowa, more in an Iowa manner right. rather than, um, rather than, uh, what is that word I'm looking for? It's just ridiculous. Pedagogy? Rather than an approach. Yes. Yeah. Pedagogy. Thank you. Sure. Yeah. I, I had to shift. I had, a sh- you know, my own sense. It's not my mm-hmm. own. I don't want to say that. A sense of pedagogy that comes more out of a Muscogean or tribal tradition, which is, is different. Mm-hmm. So when I finally started, when that's, I heard that from that student, I thought, well, there, it was painful to hear it, but it was absolutely right. Mm-hmm. So in one of the last classes I taught there, I called it, it was a literature class, contemporary American literature, I called it decolonizing the American mind. And mm-hmm. I had all kinds of poets. We taught all kinds of poets there. And, and, and the midterm was to memorize three, I know not, I was going to say 300 lines of poetry. And I thought, you know, I think they're going to have it fit. <laughs> I'll do 100 lines, mm-hmm. <laughs> 100 lines of poetry. And then a short paper on why that poem what it is, you know, in discussing the poetry that they recite. Well, people freaked out. The, <laughs> the advisor said, came says, what are you doing in there? There's a couple of people coming thinking about changing the class. I said, I'm just <laughs> having them memorize. But it took two days. Everybody did it. And it was so, everybody, at the end of it, people were exhilarated because they saw, they experienced the power of poetry. Yeah. And, as I told them, you will have your poetry with you. It won't be left behind in a book, and you can call and on it. And it's in your body then. You know, it's really... Yeah. yeah. And it's spoken communally. I mean, I had done that once in a class when I was a visiting writer at University of Montana. And it wasn't... They had to memorize up to, what is it, eight lines. It was nothing like a hundred, but this was a midterm. And... uh I re- always remember in that classroom that how powerful we sat there. I said, "You feel that? Do you feel? Do you, do you feel that?" And they were like, "Wow, yeah." Now we we see mm-hmm. we feel that. Yeah. Um, thank you for that. You know, I I've been teaching since I was 
since 1996, uh, or I guess since 95, in all kinds of community settings and also in university settings. And it's taken a long time for me to decolonize, deprogram, de-ivory tower uh, myself uh, from like some de-educate myself in order to be really, to begin to be the kind of teacher I really want to be. And this podcast is also part of it. Um, You know, it's not affiliated with any institutions or anything like that. So we only have a little bit of time and I have questions for you on so many different topics that I thought I'd ask, which of these topics do you feel like talking about because you get interviewed all the time and maybe there's one that you don't get asked about. So I would love to hear you talk about jazz and saxophone. Um, I listen to your band um, a lot. Uh, I'd love to hear you talk about being a mother, being a grandmother. I the this, That amazing quote uh, that you said that Audre Lorde said, there's no difference between being a poet and a mother and a lover, these things are connected. Talk about, I, for lack of a better word, I guess prophecy or uh, second sight or your experiences with going into a world of story that transcends time and space. I mean, I'd love to hear you talk about what your experience was like, your three times poet laureateship. Um, and, uh, but, but what, what do you feel like talking about today for whatever reason? Well, I guess I could talk about kind of hit on some of those things. There's, uh, I'm in the middle of, you know, I've sandwiched this interview in the middle of, I'm getting ready to record a kind of a performance of Wings of Night Sky, Wings of Morning, Morning Light. Mm for the Bard at the Gate series that Paula Vogel is doing. Cool. And we're getting ready to record. Yeah, she's incredible. I just, she sent me the link. I got to see her play Indecent. And oh my God, she's just, she's brilliant, generous, amazing. And two weeks ago was my 10th, it was a it was a big one, the 10th anniversary of me, first date anniversary of my husband, the 10th, It had been 10 years since I started on a play called We Were There When Jazz Was Invented. Mm. And the premise is to show that Muskogee people were part of the origin story of blues and jazz. Because we're left out of the story. I've done lots of, you know, a lot of research, etc. And, you know, people will stand and be looking into the backyard of the origin story of jazz, which is sitting on a native reservation or you know native no native community with the players being half Choctaw or whatever and saying um you know not mentioning natives at all mm-hmm. and yet if all you've got to do is hear our traditional music which isn't powwow mm-hmm. it's not pueblo native music it's not navajo it's not well you hear our music and you think oh my god there it is Oh, 
not afraid of love or its consequence of light. It's not easy to say this or anything when my entrails dangle between paradise and fear. I am ashamed. I never had the words to carry a friend from her death to the stars correctly the words to keep my people safe from drought or gunshot. who were created by words are circling over this house formed of calcium of blood. This house in danger of being torn apart by stones of fear. If these words can do anything, if these songs can do anything, I say, bless this house with stars, transfix us with love.
And then when you find out that Congo Square was a Muscogean village, you know, natives welcoming natives, people setting up booths, people playing music together, inviting them to ceremony. They, they talk. There's a, a plaque at Congo Square that talks about the green corn ceremony. Mm. Well, there you are. So I finally finished. Uh, I have it, the place got a little bit of a history. I, I had a public uh, theater commission, but I never, I was so busy and all that time, you, I probably put out 10, 10, 12 book CDs, whatever, all of it. Um, so I never got past really a rough draft, mm. you know, and some scenes and some scenes. So then last year I had a theater squared residency. I made it over there to visit one afternoon, but I did not have my finished play. Mm. Finally, because the, my last gig this fall was second week of December, I had a month and a half, and I worked. That's I finally got the time to work on it. This spring, the travel is kind of intense, but I'm not going to be traveling so much after it, it's intense through June, and after that, you know, I'm I'm thrilled that I have a lot of requests. Usually, my agent says they die down after the poet laureateship, but. I keep getting more and more. So, and that's good, mm -hmm. but I need to, um, it, it's, it was good to, um, get to work on the play. So now I have a full developed play. Of course, I'm already, I'll go in and revise when I perform my other play wings, my one woman show, I would perform. And then at that night I would go and revise Wow. and perform the revised version the next day. But so that's so that in that story is part of that is part of that origin story, mm -hmm. and it's not told pedantically. I have a young band of people, some of them acquired along the way, who wind up at Congo Square because of the funeral for my um, the protagonist's father. Mm -hmm. It's been kind of interesting to write and from a younger generation, and also to write with predominantly a young male's point of view, hmm. you know, who is the band leader, you know, all this dialogue with different characters. But I've been, you know, I, I like going into that when you were talking about going into other realms or prophetic or second sight, all artists. I mean, that's everybody. Mm -hmm. We dream, you know, where, where are our thoughts? I mean, where do they live? What realm do our thoughts live in? What realm do our dreams live in? Midnight is a horn player, warmed up tight for the last set. One a.m. is a drummer who knows how to lay it sweet. guitar player who is down on his luck. Three a.m. is a bass player walking the floor crazy for you. Five a.m. is kept for the birds. A.M. is the cleaning crew smoking cigarettes while they wait for the door to open. 7 A.M. we're having breakfast at the diner that never closes. 8 A.M. 
memory shut it down though the clock keeps running all through the town whether it's music or fiction, essay, any of it, we tap into that. And I like moving around in it. When I play music, that's the realm. I'm here, but I'm also, I think music kind of goes in between in a way that a lot of the arts, maybe they all do in some way, whether even painting or all of it. artists are active participants. We're a lot more active participants in um, the non-physical realms, perhaps, than other, other people. Yeah. I'm wondering if, as you've gotten older and also depending on where you're living you know, and your relationship to the climate, the land, the people... Have you noticed that the quality of your mind changes in a way that makes, let's say, music more uh, the realm of thought that you want to be in? And, ha- and has that kind of active, the feeling of being like this, I don't know even how to call it, this, this spirit mind has that changed for you or has it been kind of the thing in your life that hasn't changed since you were a very young child? Well, I think it's always been there, but I think when you're really young and then when you get a lot older that it becomes even more apparent. But I think artists, (laughs) excuse me, artists are always kind of, you engage with it. So it keeps it open. Mm. It keeps it open in a way. But what I like about getting older, one, is that it, you realize the depth of it. You don't take, I'm not going to say take it for granted. When you're younger, you don't really think about it. Your mind is, you're not really as, quite as engaged with it. When you get to where you're closer to death, you realize that is reality. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that, that is, that's what you're taking, that is where you're going, that's what you take with you that, it, you know, it's all a creative act, so to speak. Mm. And yet, I think what I'm, I deal with right now is dealing with a kind of belief system about age. Mm. And I, I had to, I've had to just let a lot of that go around being female and being, playing saxophone. You just have to, at some point, it's there. You realize those boundaries and borders are there. But I choose to 
I might be subjugated by them at points, for, you know, but I, I feel like I'm at my most creative, both musically and in writing. And I really appreciate, and maybe that's part of it, is I'm filled with so much gratitude that they come and help me, you know, that I get a lot of inspirational assistance. Mm. because I just get it's like I was writing Poet Warrior and I, I, I'm a hardcore romantic and yet I'm very aware of conflict and ugliness you know it's and maybe that's why I lean towards maybe being too romantic but I was writing away about the stepfather trying to understand mm-hmm. you know trying to understand what made him the way he was and to realize that he must have been miserable too in his existence or he wouldn't have been that treated as that way. But I'm riding away on this scene and at the end this line comes, even the monster has a story. Mm-hmm. And when that line came, I said, thank you. Cause, because I don't feel like I came up with that, but my writing team or my inspirational or however it is, it was like, wow, thank you. It's like the poem. I mean, where did they come from? I, you know, I call it back or the fear poem. I needed that poem because of, I needed it. Yeah. But I think what artists do is you say, okay, um, I'll do the work. And I'll take care of it. I don't think I was the most likely person. I, I laugh. I think about, I think they were probably... Uh, placing bets on on who um, that whoever got me placing bets on you know on uh, on me that I would never that I would never make it mm. it's something that Sandra writes about too in that introduction about how we were neither she or I were you know we went through some experiences that made it very clear that uh, we were we weren't we weren't necessarily participants. Right. Or we weren't necessarily, you know, going to, I don't like the word make it. We weren't necessarily going to be mm-hmm. successful mm-hmm. as poets. And I love her newest book, Woman Without Shame. I think it's wonderful. I think it's wonderful. Yeah. I mean, it certainly seems like both of you are in this incredibly fertile period of your life that is not what, you know, we normally, not what the culture sort of tells us to expect of women who are postmenopausal, older, elders, wise women. Um, but it's not true, this, you know, idea. Yeah, it's very different from what we're sold in this mm-hmm. society. Because in Native communities, before B.C., before Christianity, you know, age, you know, being older meant that you had seen and learned something along the way that might be useful. And if you look at the role of grandmothers in communities, we're the keepers of wisdom, the storytellers, um, hilarious, and, um, you know, we have a very important role. And often I've noticed that women come more into their creativity because we don't have the everyday of, of, of 
childcare. Mm-hmm. Although a lot of women are my age are do have childcare because of grandchildren and drugs and mm-hmm. and that kind of thing. But traditionally, we, you know, we could then embrace. You know, embrace our our creativity. I've been watching that with my daughter who had six children and helped raise three others mm. and was creative along the way. And now there's two at home, two younger ones, and her creativity is, you know, is mind-blowing. Yeah. This is just a little aside, but my youngest son is uh, 15, and he's a just passionate jazz musician and jazz listener. And uh, John Coltrane and Alice Coltrane are his great loves because of your uh books um i started listening to jim pepper and um so i i really impressed my son i said well have you heard of jim pepper um and we listened (laughs) um together and um so i you know i i just want and i've been listening to um your work also with my son um he's a little more traditional um you know which is hilarious but but uh when is we were there when jazz was invented is that gonna exist on the stage soon somewhere can is it is it gonna it come will out somewhere i'll be doing a reading of it at theater squared i promised them that uh-huh and i don't know where it will first be, be first produced and do you play saxophone in it in the production i am not planning to be in the production i didn't write a role in for myself uh-huh. I had thought about, I was asked when the public theater asked me to do it, you know, when they were, I was working with them, they said they really wanted me to write a role in it for myself. But I'm, I didn't, I didn't want to do that. I wanted to, I didn't, I, mm. and there's different versions. I have revised that play. It's, I don't know how many times right now it's his 12th revision, but it's not, it's more like, it's been many different incarnations, but yeah, and some of them I did have a kind of role. So I have one more question, and then I was hoping maybe you'd read one more poem. If you were going to talk to your 50-year-old self and give her some advice or some consolation or give her a little loving slap on the tush, what what would you what would you say? I mean, I'm just me and my poet sister, she, she texted me before this and I told her I was recording with you and she said, well, get all the wisdom you can and pass it my way. <laughs> so this is what I'm asking okay. for. <laughs> I think that, well, it's certainly, to me, it's a, I remember turning 50 and thinking, well, I'm in between, not that I'll live to be 100. I don't, I don't really want to live to be 100. But you you're very aware you become a lot more aware of mortality when you're you turn 50 and you realize wow i am and and time is moving faster the thing and this was advice given to me because they said relax go with the flow relax you will get done what you need to get done and you'll get it done smoother if you go with the waves when I turned 50, I was living in Hawaii, racing out river canoes, something I never thought I would be doing. And uh, and it's a lot like the water. You know, if you go with the water, if you go with the waves, 
and you move with them, you're going to get there. And in a sense, it's not always about getting there, it's about how you get there. And at 50, you become suddenly, you're aware of mortality in a way that, when you're younger, poets, artists play with mortality. They think that, they think they're immune from death, so they, they play with it. And then you turn 50 and you're, you know, it's real. And it, mm -hmm. as well as that sense of, well, what have I accomplished? What have I not accomplished? And from looking there, from here, it's like, you will. There's no sense in worrying. Worry, in fact, puts up roadblocks because of the energy of worry is static. Mm. But, you know, don't look upon yourself, you know, take care of yourself, but, you know, just enjoy what you're doing. Enjoy what you're doing and the thing, and don't be looking at, you know, conforming to somebody else's belief system, whether it's about, you know, how old you have to be to do this or that or, or any of that. Just consider what's possible. I mean, I think about it a lot about how in most cultures and communities in the world, we couldn't, you couldn't be on here interviewing me in a podcast mm -hmm. or doing your art. Right. I couldn't be out here doing what I'm doing you know, going to give, you know, going to two school, a university next week and a or school into a art museum and then coming back and then going and doing a music performance somewhere. We couldn't do it. We wouldn't be allowed. Mm. It would not even be in, it wouldn't, we wouldn't have, it wouldn't be allowable. It could, wouldn't even be possible. We couldn't even be out of the house or the materials or the it, the education or what it wouldn't be possible right i think about that unless we were males mm -hmm. and even then you know it just depends so i'm grateful that i can be out there like this i think that's why sometimes people my family will say well why aren't you retiring <laughs> and i say i like what i do why should i retire and I think I'm also aware that if I were in some other society, I wouldn't even be alive now. Yeah. You know, the life expectancy, I wouldn't even be alive. So I feel like at this point, with the materials at hand and the, uh, and the possibilities, then I'm going to take advantage of it. Because we're all here to learn, we're all here to help take care of each other, and also to pass on what we know. One of the things I did when I taught at the Institute of American Indian Arts, and that was my first like teaching job, I took my students and had them teach. Mm -hmm. We would go down to Albuquerque Indian School, which is an open, and because I, I learned that that's, I learned, um, I liked teaching because I would always uh, learn something I didn't know. If there was something, something I wanted to know more of, I would teach it. <laughs> yes. Yep demands you know study and so on like that so anyway um yeah that's that's my advice which is poorly put that's why i like to write <laughs> that's why i prefer <laughs> writing because i can revise i can revise and be a control freak about it well it you you have given us so many incredible books so i appreciate the 
I would say, not poorly written at all, not poorly spoken advice. <laughs> um, I thought maybe we could end with you reading one more poem. The the ones that I wrote down, but it's it's really up to you, is either the creation story, perhaps the world ends here, or remember, and remember is going to uh, soon be a picture book, What or if you wanted to read something else. But those ones are breaking my heart and making my heart at the same time right now. So what about without? That's the one that ends the book. Great. Waving sundown in a scarlet light. That, yeah, because I think it, it lands on what we've been talking about. And I found this, I was, I had a, a brother-in-law who um, passed of COVID. Mm. He had just gotten back with his childhood sweetheart from Indian school and they were so happy and she got vaccinated. He wouldn't. Oh. And there, you know, in his church, they wouldn't. Nine people died in his church because the preacher said, you know, it was a plot by um, probably by Obama or Hillary. Mm. And and then it took him, you know, he was healthy and robust. And within a week, he was gone. Oh. So I was asked to write a poem for his funeral. And my husband didn't go because that was the church that I bet I went to be with his widow. I, I walked with her the whole way. And um, this poem I wrote thinking about this, but then the poem I actually wrote was different because this one doesn't really fit the con, you know, it doesn't fit the audience so mm -hmm. much. But I also found it, it taught me that I should go back through my journals because I found some of this poem in there and I thought, whoa, why did I never develop mm -hmm. it? But then it all fit. And it ends the collection. I think it's one of my best poems. But And this is after 50 years, this is what emerged. Mm. I don't think I could have written this one when I was in, uh, in my 20s. Mm. Without. The world will keep trudging through time without us. When we lift from the story contest to fly home. We will be as falling stars to those watching from the edge of grief and heartbreak. Maybe then we will see the design of the two-minded creature and know why half the world fights righteously for greedy masters and the other half is nailing it all back together through the smoke of cooking fires, lovers' trysts, and endless human industry. Maybe then, beloved rascal, we will find each other again in the timeless weave of breathing. We will sit under the trees in the shadow of earth's sorrows, watch hyenas drink rain, and laugh. Mm. Thank you, thank you, thank you so much, Joy, for your time and your work and your wisdom. Thank you. Well, thank you too for what you do in the story. I call it the story field. <laughs> down that bag of potato chips, that white bread, that bottle of pop. Turn off that cell phone, computer, and remote control. Open the door, then close it behind you. 
take a breath offered by friendly winds. They travel the earth gathering essences of plants to clean. Give it back with gratitude. If you sing, it will give your spirit lift to fly to the stars' ears and back. You've been listening to episode 108 of Commonplace with Joy Harjo. I'm your host, Rachel Zucker. Many thanks to Wesleyan University Press, W.W. Norton, and to Joy Harjo for allowing us to use excerpts from Ale Nale No, American Sunset, Creation Story, Midnight is a Horn Player, and Calling the Spirit Back. Creation Story is from Joy's album, Letter to the End of the 20th Century. The other tracks are from her album, I Pray for My Enemies. This episode was produced by me, Valentin Conady, Christine LaRusso, and Langa Chinyoka. Many thanks to the patrons who support Commonplace, to all of you who send messages of support and encouragement, and to you, listener. Thank you for listening. The journey might take you a few hours, a day, a year, a few years, a hundred, a thousand, or even more. Watch your mind. Without training, it might run away and leave your heart for the immense human feast set by the thieves of time. Do not hold regrets. When you find your way to the circle, to the fire kept burning by the keepers of your soul, you will be welcomed. You must clean yourself with sage, cedar, or other healing plant. Cut the ties you have to failure and shame. Let go the pain you are holding in your mind, your shoulders, your heart, all the way to your feet. Let go the pain of your ancestors to make way for those who are heading in our direction. Ask for forgiveness. Call upon the help of those who love you. Call your spirit back. It may be caught in corners and creases of shame, judgment, and human abuse. You must call in a way that your spirit will want to return. Speak to it as you would a beloved child. Welcome your spirit back from its wandering. It may return in pieces and tatters. Gather them together. They will be happy to be found after being lost for so long. Your spirit will need to sleep a while after it is bathed and given clean clothes. Now you can have a party. Invite everyone you know who loves and supports you. Keep room for those who have no place else to go. Make a giveaway. And remember, keep the speeches short. Then you must do this. Help the next person find their way through the dark.